Hello, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. In this podcast, I get to know creative misfits, underdogs, wild rebels and those people who have stuck one giant middle finger up to society and live life their way. This creative indie kid is a frontman, composer, writer and queer icon and does it all with a level of humility that's second to none. He is a musical storyteller who has expressed himself through music and has shared his own upbringing in a queer household. It is my gorgeous friend, Dan Gillespie Sells. How awkward was that for you, my love? Oh, I'm dying. I'm absolutely dying. But inside, I'm also kind of glowing as well. It's, it's very nice of you to say those things. I think we should start, really, with where you're from. You're a proper London boy and you grew up as such an indie kid. You've had such a fascinating upbringing and such a... I guess, such a broad career, doing so many different things. But what influenced you when you were growing up creatively? Because creativity has been at the forefront of everything that you do. I think I was influenced by all the stuff around me. There was a lot of colour around me. There was a lot of vibrancy and colour and, and energy. And um, I'd say kind of on a on a kind of like general level, they're the big influences in my life because, I don't know, you just kind of... You just soak up your your all all the stuff in your surroundings, and it was there was always music, and there was always fashion, there was always uh, you know dramas because we were a queer family living a queer life in London, and also a queer family in a time where publicly the very notion of having a generational queer family was not maybe in the public consciousness. Yeah, I mean, we, we were certainly we weren't alone because my mum had actually started a lesbian parents group. So there was a few other families out there. And, and it was really nice because there was a little mini community to be part of. And actually, I miss that. I miss the kind of odd, you know, when, you, when you're outside of things, um, you're outside of mainstream yeah. culture, you find your kind of weird little group. And sometimes you're like, oh, God, I'm stuck with these people. But often it's actually a sense of family and a sense of community that sometimes is missing from people's lives. And I actually think that the silver lining of the cloud of oppression is that we can find like-minded people that have had a similar experience to us to connect with. And did it feel like that at the time? Because no kid ever wants to feel different or weird yeah. or not part of the mainstream. So at the time, how did it feel growing up in a queer household? I think it was strange for me because I knew on the outside that there was this big world that didn't accept our family as the way they were. But inside the family, we were just us in the weird mm. shape that we were this kind of strange setup that had kind of developed and evolved in our family with my dad being around as well, my gay uncle Vince, you know, this extended family network, all these women in the house who were also queer and had kind of ended up staying with us and hanging with us in this strange kind of commune in North London. And also my mother's also part of the disability movement. So there was also quite a lot of disabled people, people with different impairments coming in and out of the house. We ran charities and organisations from our front room. So it was a hodgepodge of craziness and madness. And so there was no kind of normal. And for me, the outside world didn't understand us, but we understood ourselves. And that's what mattered, really, I suppose. Yeah. I'm always so interested on those that came before me, especially at this age. And you look at the new generation of queer people, but we're also connected to the generation before us. We're sort of straddling the line somewhere. I'm interested historically to find out who those people are. A lot of those people that actually never get their stories told. And here you are, stood on the shoulder of queer legends and giants, really. So tell everybody about your mum. I've met her many times and she is a formidable character. <laughs> She's a force of nature. She became disabled before she had me and my brother and my older brother. 
she was already disabled in her late 20s through a kind of infection that she got in a hospital when she was working as a head nurse. So she was kind of kind of almost slightly pushed into the situation of like having to have kids at that age because she might not be able to have them when she got older if her impairment got worse. So it was interesting that she was suddenly decided, oh, we better have kids. But she had grown up in a kind of working class, um, she calls it Irish Cockney family, where her mother was an Irish immigrant and her family grew up in a two-bedroom flat with several brothers. And so she was the only girl in the family. And so she's just a tough woman who's, who's kind of seen it all and been there and done that. And then when she came out as gay, when we were very, very small, me and my brother were like two and one year old, she came out and, um, and then she kind of got straight into learning about not only disability, but also queer politics. And by the time she was in her 30s, she was running the disability uh, section at Pride and had Europe's only LGBT disability charity organisation. And, you know, we were doing all kinds of stuff. It was kind of mad, really. I mean, we had a fertility clinic essentially running from our front room. We had, <laughs> it was all this kind of, you know, and it was her and her and, and, and my other mum, Delish, who now lives in Ireland. They took on the world, really. I mean, they, they were prepared to take on anything. They were, they were scared of nothing. Um, they were inspired by all the other civil rights movements that came before as well. You know, they knew about the civil rights movement in America with African-Americans fighting for their rights and, and apartheid movement in South Africa. You know, they're using the playbook of other um, movements before them as well. And like everyone, we all learn from the generation that came before and we move forward, hopefully, with joy and fun and love and, and hope, you know, and all of those those beautiful things and also with community i mean there's one thing it's got to be said about it when we the more the more they oppress us the more we get together and the more we cling to each other to move forward so was there ever a need then in your household for you to essentially come out or did it just did it just happen do you know what it was they clocked awful first of all they clocked it but also they wanted me to come out in my own time but then it got to a point where i just didn't come out for so long and I suppose I had issues with the idea of coming out. Okay, so I'll tell you why I struggled with coming out. I didn't not want to be gay. Well, the reason I didn't want to be gay was because the tabloids were printing all these stories about these gay families turning all their kids gay, right? So the idea was like this ridiculous myth was that, you know, as if gay kids didn't exist from straight families. I mean, it's kind of stupid when you think about it. But the the myth that was out there was the myth of all of the kids will end up being gay as well. And because I was a gay kid growing up in a gay family, I didn't want to be evidence for the opposition, and also I felt like it was a bit boring for me to be gay from a gay family. I thought it'd be much more interesting if I was straight. But there's nothing you could do about it. That would have been the ultimate act of rebellion <laughs> to come out as yeah, straight. Yeah, right, and join the army, wasn't But the thing is, I suppose what happened was eventually it got to the point where actually Delish, my other mum, kind of like cornered me and was like, listen, you are gay, right? I was like, yeah, I am. And then my mum immediately wanted to throw a party. And I was like, you will not throw a party. This is the worst thing you could possibly do. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) And also because the thing is, right, when you haven't got a boyfriend or a partner, talking about your sexual orientation to your parents is essentially just talking about what you wank about <laughs> for some people it's a big thing because it's identity like well, no, for something it's a big thing it's bigger and it's identity and it's based around all of this kind of stuff you know but I, I grew up in a queer house anyway everyone in my family is queer whether they're straight or not because of the way we grew up right so it wasn't about identity it was literally yeah. about what i wanked at you know that was literally the only detail i thought that i was going to be you know imparting to my parents so that's why i was so awkwardly 
trying to avoid coming out just because I didn't want to talk about who I fancied, you know. It was like, that's private. I'm so embarrassing to talk about that with my parents because it wasn't a big shift. I can understand it for someone who comes from a straight household and they feel like, okay, this is a whole lifestyle thing. But for me, it was never going to be that. It was just yeah, going to be about yeah. who I fancied and that was super cringe to talk about with my mum. <laughs> I feel that in some way or another, everything that you were raised as, you have taken in your own creative way, put that into your career, right? You've achieved huge things with the feeling and there wasn't that many gay front men of bands. So where does that grounded, normal, almost embarrassment that you're feeling right now, as I say these words, where does that come from? I just was very lucky to be queer in a queer family. Um, I'm aware that my mood is quite stable. I don't know what, I've got nothing to compare it to, but I'm not one to suffer from terrible ups and downs, if you know what I mean. I'm quite stable, luckily, and I'm very thankful for that. And I think it's because I think a lot of the struggles that a lot of LGBT people have from something really close to them, which is growing up different within their own families and stuff. And I, I was very lucky because I wasn't different with, even within my family. Yes, I had to contend with school and the real world and the bullshit of society, particularly in the 80s and 90s, which was trying to push family values down everyone's throat and the press, the disgusting press in this country, the disgusting kind of way that LGBT people have been talked about and treated for the last 30 years. And I had to contend with that. But when I went home, I was safe. It was very, very safe. Mm. I think a lot of stuff happens when queer people are very, very young. I think a lot of us queer people are reading messages and tiny little signals from our parents and from the people around us from a really, really young age. And I think we're queer from day two dot you know, I think we come out of the vagina queer and I think there's something about even that kind of and I did get little signals every now and then from some members of the family outside the family a bit more like when I dressed up a bit too much or I was a bit too flamboyant a little sideways glance a little look a little micro kind of expression on someone's face a little little bit of concern or is he being a bit oh is he being a bit you know is that a bit camp is that a bit effeminate is that boy being right if you know what I mean is there something right about him and those little doubting looks kids pick up on that every little thing and I I kind of recall certain things from my childhood being slightly shamed at a very young age and I didn't really know what gay was I was just probably just prancing around in one of my nan's dresses or something and then someone giving a slightly disparaging look and feeling the shame of that but I think a lot of kids get that from a really young age and they don't realize that's what they're getting especially maybe young girls who want to express their masculinity and and it being a bit oh no that's not very girly that's not very feminine that's not very pretty you know that behavior you should be more pretty I think and that kind of stuff those little micro signals kind of disrupt the natural flow of growing up and I think they get in the way of us just growing up natural and expressive and exuberant and joyous and we have to refine that at a later stage in our lives I just think I had less of that than a lot of people and I'm also not a natural front man. I mean, that's the other thing. I must say this. I, I never really wanted to be the front person of the group. I just ended up doing it because um, no one else would do it. You know, <laughs> it was quite late. We'd already been together as a band for years. We, well, our band had a female lead singer and I was very happy writing the songs, you know, with her and being the guitarist and doing the backing vocals. And then at a certain stage, I got pushed into being the front person and I didn't actually really ever want that. Though I enjoy it, I also am slightly kind of aware that it's not my natural place in the world to be at the front. I'd rather be kind of steering things from the back. I had no idea that there was a a female singer before you. had no idea. There was, yeah, when we were at school, yeah. So let's talk (laughs) about school. Your education was really arty, really creative, and you went to Ashmore Academy in North London, whose alumni include Amy Winehouse, 
then to Brit School in South London, where someone called Adele was knocking about. So do you think your education has informed your creative choices? Yeah, absolutely. My mum saw, uh, I think, a documentary or read an article about the Brit School and was like, oh, this would be perfect for you. And as soon as I went to the Brit School, I went from being the weird kid at school with the DMs and the long hair and the kind of weird rat's tail that I had at one point. And then I went to the Brit school and suddenly I was incredibly normal compared to the kids there. You know, I was sort of, I was actually a bit of a wallflower when before that I'd been this kind of odd music kid. And I think Amy must have felt the same way. You know, Ashmore was a quite a boring place. And then you went to the Brit school and suddenly the world exploded because suddenly everyone was crazy and wild and brilliant and expressive and they were all like us you know they were all different and wanted to be stars of some kind and actually what's an important thing to say about the brit school is it's a non-fee-paying school and i think that's really important that's one of the reasons it's so successful and brilliant the phenomenal success that comes out of the brit school is actually mind-blowing isn't it i'm talking worldwide success so what is it about the brit school what is it about also developing really individualised artists. That's what always fascinates me. Yeah, well, they don't try and mould you. What they do is they just get a load of kids who are all artistic and interested in whatever they're interested in. So it could be production design or art, or it could be music, or it could be acting or dancing. It could be musical theatre. It could be anything, as long as it's kind of creative. And then they make sure that you're passionate about it, and then they let you in, and you don't have to pay. So there's kids from like the local catchment area. There's kids who've travelled from Spain to go there. And there's just Croydon kids as well, all mixed in there. So the ecosystem is quite natural. I think that's all it is, and they let you get on with it. They just, you show up and they let you get on with it. And what's really weird is since I left the Brit School, I've started hiring Brit School kids for Jamie Productions. And on the film, we had, you know, our second camera operator who did all the steady cam was a woman from the Brit School. She went to the Brit School after me and she was just magnificent, a world-class camera woman. So there's people from production, people who are acting, people who are performers all coming out of that place. And they come out very confident. They come out in a nice way, you know, self-confident. They come out very much an, an individual and they also come out of that place ready to work and with a really great work ethic and am i right in thinking that's when the feeling really came together and found their feet and that's when it all began at the brit school yeah me and me and rich me and dickie started our first band uh, i think about day three of the brit school like and then and we've been working together ever since so we still we still work together on everything you know <laughs> so that's a long time ago that's that's you know coming up to 25 26 years ago or something like that you're still out there on stages you're still performing but i do want to take you back because feel my little world i remember when it came out it was everywhere it was on adverts it was in shops and it was just the perfect earworm it was on eastenders you know <laughs> so did you at that point dan did you ever think god this is out of control it's moving too fast or were you really prepared for it all i think i was aware of what was going to happen it, it was our god i mean we had like five singles on the trot off of that album and they were all getting played on the radio a lot but we were busy because we were like we need to capitalize on it so we toured japan and america and and all over the world so we were just busy trying to make the most of it we were already slightly long in the tooth when that happened we'd been in the business for about 10 years before that i, mean, I was kind of 25 26 that ripe old age <laughs> yeah right but I mean, at the time we felt like we'd already passed, you know, we'd like, this was our last chance, yeah. you know, at the time it's weird because, you know, everyone was so young and, and we'd had mates who were in bands because we'd worked behind the scenes in the business quite a bit before then, you know, we'd been session players for other artists and we'd played on other people's records just as musicians, just jobbing musos. The feeling was just like kind of our little project on the side that we were doing while we were, the rest of the time we were kind of paying the bills by playing weddings or whatever we could 
get, you know, whatever gigs we could get. And then it kind of just took off because we carried on cracking at it. And, you know, those demos had been around for a few years by the time they were hits. You know, it wasn't like it all just came out of nothing. You know, people had liked those demos. They just didn't know quite what to do with it. And then the timing was just right. Because I'd kind of given up on indie. Like, I don't, people don't remember at the time, but The Strokes were like the biggest band in the world. And that Strokes album made everyone want to sound like The Strokes. And, you know, all the bands were like quite skinny genie kind of leather jacket-y hanging out in East London and being very kind of rock and roll, I say in inverted commas, because quite a lot of it was confected. But at the time, that was the world that we were in. It was quite macho, it was quite straight. You know, you, you'd go and play these bars in Camden and go and play that whole circuit. And it was quite a macho environment. And it was all about drinking loads and hedonism and laddishness and, and that kind of world. And I just didn't want to have anything to do with that world. So the feeling was like a reaction to it. The feeling was like, I want harmonies. I listen to Carpenter's records. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been the punk kid. I wanted to do something different. And the feeling was was very much a kind of expression of joy, an expression of um, kind of radical joy and an attempt to be pretty. And so it took a while for that to, for people to understand what that was, I think. And for it to be something that anyone would sign. But eventually they did, you know. And that was probably due to Scissor Sisters or Keen or other bands that came before us that were doing pop. You know, we were like, we want to do pop. I'm not interested in being hard. <laughs> Why is pop given such a bad name? I mean... Well, it was then, yeah. Both you and I have created whole industries based on pop music. Yeah. And I think still, you know, there'll be times where I'll work, walk into record labels or I'll walk into see um, agents, for instance. And mm. the minute they see the pop universe i'm seen as not credible or i'm seen as fluffy or camp and all of those things yeah. and i am all of those things but i'm also way more yeah it's a yeah. very frustrating place to exist right it doesn't matter how far you go or how much you prove well the world the word credible is a really interesting word because that was always a conceit that was like you know put against are they credible do you know what i mean um which yeah. is weird because we did all the indie things we made our record independently in a shed ourselves self-written self-produced everything like you know and there were bands out there that were seen as way more credible than we were that had been put together by record labels who were like indie darlings and we were like this is i mean you're saying we're not credible because we like harmonies because we like melody because we want it to be an earworm yeah. because we want it to show joy and express joy mm. i mean I'm, i think that sorrow is a beautiful thing to express as well but i would do it in a way that lets people in i do it in a way that's accessible i do it in a way that that because that interests me and also i find it interesting i find it dangerous i find it all of those things you said that latterly you almost ran out of things to write about musically. And after a brush with depression, music sort of ceased to be a place of solace for you. I think what happened to me was I realised that at one point that I turned like this thing that always used to bring me joy and um, consolation, I'd turned that into my career. And after a few albums with The Feeling, it got really tough. This was around album three with The Feeling, where it was getting really difficult to kind of maintain a kind of level of authenticity in what I wanted to say, you know? I think I'd kind of run out of ideas, I'd run out of things to say for myself, and I'd realised that the place I would normally go to when I was struggling would be music, but I didn't want to go there anymore because I'd already turned it into this kind of... I mean, I refer to it as this shiny unicorn that I used to have as a kid in my life. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of be able to go to my music and it would be this beautiful, shining, <laughs> glittery unicorn. Um, and then somehow I managed to attach reins to it and it ended up kind of pulling the rest of my life along. And then before I knew it, I had a mortgage. And I had a band who all had kids who also had mortgages, you know, and a whole army of people mm. around me, depending on it. And suddenly the poor unicorn turned into a kind of cart horse, desperately trying to kind of keep it all going. And I was like, I needed to get my unicorn back. And it took a while to 
to start kind of circumnavigating the the tricky parts of things and and to rediscover the joy in music and i think most artists have that bit in their life where they have to figure that out i think anyone that takes something that's a passion and it's privileged to take a passion and a, a hobby and something that gives them the most amount of joy when it becomes your job it's a very hard thing to explain this to somebody but you feel a sense that you have lost the ownership yeah the ownership of your own personal joy making right Yeah, absolutely i mean i can relate and you almost don't want to moan about it because then you sound like an entitled (laughs) git so it's a really really thin line that one to straddle because you go right i need to reconnect with what makes me feel joy because otherwise everything that i ever wanted doesn't exist Yeah, and i want to warn people like i feel like the only reason people don't talk about it is you feel like oh you privileged bastard you know but the truth is i think people should be warned you know like be careful what you wish for nothing comes for free and doing what you love for a living doesn't come for free it sounds like the best thing ever and when you're a kid you're like you want to be taken seriously as an artist and you want to be taken seriously as what you are and that that means doing it for a living that means turning it into your job and your career and that's great but it does come at a price and i think that it's important for people to know that and to also then learn how to rediscover the joy while it's your job you know i think because we still want to do it for a living right and we've all invested all of our lives in turning our hobbies into our careers but there's just a bit of awareness needed that i didn't have i wish someone had told me when i was starting out to just be aware you know, be aware what you're doing, be aware that if this does happen, and it's a one in a million that it does happen for you, but be aware that there's a price to be paid and how you're going to deal with that. And I think it's about being able to reposition that fire, that fire, whatever that fire was at the beginning yeah. in your belly, where am I going to reposition it? Because I'm sure that you had this view on what success and what that, and that would be to be the front man of a band whose songs are played in EastEnders <laughs> and all of these things. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You get to this point where you go, oh my God, I've literally, the detail, the detail of success, I've ticked all those boxes. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a really good tool to be able to pivot, which you did yes. so wonderfully into the West End and beyond. Everybody's talking about Jamie. It's the most bold, original piece of theatre, I think, for some time in terms of a musical, because what you did was you took a very surreal documentary from the BBC and made it into a musical. So let's go back to the conception of that and go, right, this is what we're going to do and this is going to be a success. Or is that how it happened? Well, my lovely friend Jonathan, whose house I'm in at the moment, um, um, he came to me and Tom with this project. We've been introduced. Um, me and Tom had always said we want to, we'd love to write a musical. So we'd been introduced to, to Jonathan, who was this very experienced musical theatre director who'd been working on Broadway. And, and he was from Sheffield originally. So he'd gone back to Sheffield after years on Broadway and being sick of Broadway and going, I want to go back to Sheffield and do something for my hometown. He'd gone back to Sheffield and he had a conversation with them about doing a brand new musical. And he'd seen this documentary called Jamie Drag Queen at 16. And... He thought it was charming and simple and gorgeous and would would make a kind of really lovely, positive musical. It had a kind of natural journey to it. And the other thing that was radical about it and the thing that brought me on board and made me feel like I wanted to do it was that at that time, most queer stories were kind of victim-led and they weren't really kind of effeminate heroes. They weren't like effeminate, obviously queer heroes who were, you know, still kind of maintaining their heroic status they were challenged but i think what's interesting about jamie is that he was challenged but he's never a victim and i think that that's what made me want to do it especially with my upbringing you imagine that i mean you know i was watching all of these stories of queer tragedy when i'm growing up going well that doesn't relate to me i've got 
gay parents, a gay uncle. I'm pretty okay, actually. I couldn't find anyone who was going to tell my story. Um, and Jamie was the first time I'd seen a story where it was like, okay, he's he's all right. He's he's just bossing it. You know, he's kind of queer and out there. And yes, he has issues to deal with. Yes, he has the world outside to focus on. But you know, at home he's cool, and 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 with himself. He's actually quite cool. He's quite grounded and he knows who he is and what he is and what he wants to be. And obviously Tom, who you mentioned before, is who you wrote with, yes. the, the show right. with. And, and and his background is Doctor Who and he's got mm-hmm. great experience writing. Yeah. And Johnny, director and producer. Yeah. And these are the people that you've carried on working with. And it's now a huge film on Amazon, seen around the world with Richard E. Grant. I know, and I know. And they said it was going to be in 250 countries and it just blew my mind. I was like, wow. And for me, that's more than we'd ever hoped for, for this weird little story set in Sheffield, you know, in this very, very specific kind of working class community in Sheffield. And and suddenly it's not only in the West End and gone to America and Japan and Korea as a theatre show, but also now it's in 250 territories as a movie. And I feel like, you know, a fraction of the people that see it might like it and be moved by it and that's enough you know i think it's a fascinating story actually because if you take away a lot of the detail is there's just some really worldwide themes of being the odd one out and struggle and trying to connect with those around you when you feel a bit like an alien that's the beauty of it i think that really resonates worldwide it's become i think a bit of a queer mecca in the west end that people go with their mums i took my mum and it was really beautiful for me and my mum to go and sit there because it felt like my story well we talked about my mum earlier and and obviously having gay parents is one thing but also i think jonathan our director and tom our writer both have incredible mums in their lives um actually tom's mum passed away which is really sad but she was an incredibly supportive mother Jonathan's mother is a incredibly supportive mother. And I think those of us who have amazing mums in our lives are like so, so lucky. Mm-hmm. And it's such a big thing. And it's such a big deal, I think, for queer people to be supported by their families. And I think that, that we should always be grateful for them. And we celebrate Margaret, who's Jamie's mum. She's the real hero of the story, to be fair. <laughs> she's the real hero because she's so kind of unreservedly supportive of this queer kid. And she understands him and she gets him and she's just there for him. I mean, we talked about it being eight years from its conception to where it got to <laughs> with the movie. It takes a lot of patience to get there. How do you keep that going? Yeah, that's one of the really tough things about particularly musicals is, is that they take years and years and years to develop. And, and also you've got to kind of convince people that it's the right thing. But like I said before, it was, you know, the, me and the boys from The Feeling were going 10 years before we got a record deal. Nothing has come particularly easy. To, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was, that's not true. Jamie happened quite easily. Um, um, we were very lucky. It all kind of fell into place. But it still took, you know, years and years for it to get onto the stage. And, and I'm, I'm used to that. You know, if you believe in something, you're doing it because you're doing it. There's an intrinsic desire to do it. You're doing it because you enjoy the process of doing it. Eventually, of course, you want it to get out there into the big wide world and share it with all your loved ones and share it with the, with an audience and share it with your fans or whatever. But the making of it and the doing of it is the thing. And as long as you're focused on that, then, it, you know, you can keep moving that project forward inch by inch by inch by inch. And, and yeah, sometimes it feels like a boulder up a hill, but, you know, eventually you, you've got to have faith that you get to the top. And there's a lot of faith needed in being an artist, I believe. <laughs> I kind of so agree with you on that. I think... We are so pinned into the detail, right? But you're right. You've got to have faith in the process and you've got to remain present and just keep going. What advice as someone that's constantly, you know, use things from your own personal upbringing, your own life, your own struggles in your art form, what advice would you give to them? I hate giving advice. You know what? There's a weird thing that we do when we give advice is we assume that our success has got like everything to do with what we did. And sometimes we were just lucky. 
So I would say, first of all, be lucky. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because I, I don't want to take all the credit for the success of everything in my life, because I know that there's so many more people who could have had what I've had and got where I've got, and they've just hit brick walls. And I feel like they're out there listening. And I'm telling people to, you know, just, you know, work really hard as if everyone's not working really hard, you know, and telling people to, you know, believe in yourself with affirmation as if millions of people aren't doing that and still getting nowhere, you know, because that whole industry of... Of, of telling people to kind of like, you know, go for their goals and whatever, leaves a lot of people in the wake in failure and depression. And I think it's really cruel. So I would rather just say, make sure that you're enjoying it. Make sure that you're enjoying doing it for the sake of doing it. Because if it gets over the line, that's great. But if it doesn't, you still enjoyed making it, right? So make stuff, do stuff, create stuff and, and enjoy the creating and do it for the sake of it, the intrinsic desire to do it make sure that that's authentic and real and you're doing it because you love doing it and then there's no way of losing that way you know what a perfect way to end thank you for having me this has been wonderful thank you very very much 